The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. So here recently I've been reading this book by a British journalist called 4,000 Weeks. If you've been around me within the last month, I've probably said something to you about this book. Now the premise of the book is that an 80-year lifespan lasts about 4,000 weeks. So by my estimation, I'm somewhere around 1,700 weeks of those 4,000 weeks if I live to be 80 years old. That's sort of best case scenario, right? So the second or third chapter, the author talks about this really relatable paradox. He talks about how in the 1950s, with the invention of things like the vacuum cleaner and the microwave and the washer and dryer, you know, all that stuff, he, he, uh, the, 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 this pontificator said that eventually housework would essentially disappear. And we all think about the housework that's probably looming over our heads right now that did not, in fact, disappear with the invention of those things. They, they imagined that we would have so much time for new activities and so much extra time for leisure. There was another thinker that this author mentions who predicted somewhere around the 20th century that tech, the advent of new technology, would free us to work, each of us, to work only about 15 hours a week. And we would have plenty of other time for leisure and exercise or whatever, I suppose. And some of y'all are like, absolutely not. Merritt's shaking his head over here. Imagine the leisure and the opportunity. Now, now did that happen? Did, was housework eliminated? Did we arrive at a point where we're only working 15 hours a week? Of course not. The author says, that, amazingly, our activity has this kind of tendency to just fill newly available space. He says busyness and work and kind of the, the, the hustle and bustle is like kudzu. It just fills the available space, invades whatever space is open. And he says it's attributable, that this is sort of his hypothesis, he says, it's attributable to the fact that there are always infinite things that you and I can be doing and accomplishing in the world. And because we're super aware of those infinite things, and because we are by nature finite, limited creatures, we have this foolish and proud tendency to think we can do everything. To think that we can be about all of the things, all of the time. All right, so, think about this. There are effectively limitless good things that you could be doing at any moment of any day, right? We want to be fit. We want to bake our own bread. We want to become proficient at piano. We want to learn how to change our own oil. Right, here's some of the things that I've thought about doing just this past week. I want to learn how to do my own car repairs because I feel bad for always texting Clark. <laughs> I want to learn how to do pistol squats, which is kind of getting down on one leg and just having the flexibility to squat down on one leg. I have certain lifting goals that I want to reach. I want to learn to play the piano. I think it'd be cool to be able to play ragtime on the piano. I think that'd be really cool. I would like to learn how to do that. Uh, I want to give my son Nate drum lessons. I want to teach Nate how to play the drums. Uh, I want to redo our master bathroom because the tile is cracking. I want to read more to my kids. Uh, I want to develop and follow a new meal plan that's like, you know, strikes the balance of the right amount of macros. Uh, I want to read more about political theology, and I have a lot, I, I have a lot of... Uh, reading to do on like eschatology. I want to learn more about eschatology and, and have sort of a thicker understanding. And then I have 900 tabs, give or take, of YouTube videos and articles that are present tense open on my Google Chrome that I will get to, I tell myself eventually, about, you know, all sorts of things. That's the stuff that I've thought about just this week that I want to do, right? There's constant noise from every direction telling us about all of the stuff that we could be and we should be doing. Everyone has a thing 
This is the thing that you got to devote yourself to. This is the most important thing. This is the most crucial thing, practice, routine, habit, hobby that you need to be doing. Constantly we're hearing that noise, and the result is, is with what feels like an infinite number of things to be about, we're forced into this horrible, frustrating situation where anytime we say yes to one thing, we are effectively giving a no to an infinite amount of other things, and we are paralyzed and stressed and anxious about all of the really good stuff that we're not ever going to get to. This is true of us as individuals and true of us as a church. There's all sorts of good that we can do, all sorts of good that we want to do. And we're overwhelmed and anxious with the options and the opportunities. Aaron and I have bemoaned the fact that we just cannot do all of the things that we want to be able to do. Time and space and the constraints of time and space and money, it's just, it's just not going to happen, right? So we say yes to some things and it means we say no to other things and then we get see what our friends are saying and doing and, and it looks so glamorous and our FOMO flares up and we try to do more and commit ourselves to more and to be about more and we feel more stressed and more overstuffed and only do anything at about a six because we're trying to do everything. And so here's what I suspect happened last week and might even happen this week. Right, so we're talking about making disciples. One of those good things, right? right? And if Aaron and I are even sort of persuasive, you're likely convinced to add this to the list of the good things that you want to get done. It's like, I would love to be about discipleship. And you put it in the same bucket as learning an instrument, improving a laundry routine, feeding your kid less Cheez-Its or whatever, right? But hear me. What we really want to do is say that for our church family, we want our big, overarching, all-governing yes to be here, making Jesus known. Knowing full well that that's going to mean we say no to a lot of other good things that we could be doing, both as individuals and as a church. So we want to be about making Jesus known through discipleship and evangelism and missions, and we're saying that that is the priority of our church family. And of course, that's going to take on different flavors for each of us. It's going to look different for me, for, for Aaron, and for Jim, and, and Zach, and Josh, the elders. It's going to look different for us than it's going to look for you. But what it's got to mean is that you and I have the ability and, and even sort of prepare ourselves to say no to a lot of good, fine stuff in favor of this yes. So maybe travel ball is just not going to be a thing for your family. Or maybe I will never ever go see Ireland. I would love to see Ireland. The clock's ticking, though, on that one. So I'm not certain that that's ever going to be the case. And I'm not certain that I'm ever going to be playing Stevie Wonder on the piano. Because there's just other things that take priority over those things. And so our heart here is not to make you feel busier or overwhelmed or to give you another thing to do. We hope, rather, to convince you that these are the things to do. That these are the things that Christ calls us and his church to do and to be and to give ourselves to. And inevitably, when stuff finds its way onto the chopping block, these are the things that we leave on the table. And we just have to trust the Lord with everything else. Right, you follow me? So again, Matthew's gospel ends on the Great Commission, which Braden just read. And we said that we felt like obedience to the whole gospel of Matthew looked like taking discipleship, evangelism, and missions really seriously. So we want to say, what, is it, what does it look like for us to be about those things as a church, specifically? Uh, last week, uh, discipleship Jedi master Aaron taught on discipleship. Uh, he said that we could, we could sort of summarize the Great Commission as this, making Jesus known. And then we could subdivide that into three different categories. Discipleship, evangelism, and missions. Last week, Aaron defined discipleship as the formal and informal process 
by which followers of Jesus help each other be presented mature in Christ by warning and teaching one another. From Colossians 1, 28 and 29. He said that the call to discipleship is for each of us. Yes, pastors are especially called to lead the charge in this. But scriptures like Ephesians 4.12 tell us that pastors are to train up the body for the work of the ministry. So the building up of the body, discipleship, it's for all y'all, in other words. It's, it's for the body of Christ, discipleship. And he exhorted us to do six things. Last week he said, first, we need to know Jesus. We want to be about making Jesus known. Step one, know Jesus. Secondly, he said we need to pray. We need to pray for opportunities for discipleship. Pray for people to disciple and encourage us. Then he said, we need to join a church. I thought this was really, really helpful. Discipleship happens in the grinder that is the local church. We need to join a church and commit ourselves to a bunch of imperfect people who are going to frustrate us and thereby sanctify us. Fourth thing he said is we need to initiate with people. Don't expect people to pursue you. Go invite people into your life. Wedge yourself into the life of other people. Fifthly, he said we need to invest our entire life. We just got to drink the Kool-Aid. We just got to buy in. We got to be about this thing. And then lastly, we need to exhort one another. So today, we're going to talk about evangelism. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21, and we're going to consider two questions. First, what is evangelism? And secondly, what does evangelism require of us? Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 16. Paul writes, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul started this church at Corinth many years prior to writing this letter, and he has a deep love for these people. This letter is a climax in a series of correspondences that Paul has with this church. You know, we have a tendency to romanticize the early church. If only we did things like the early church. It's like, the early church wasn't exactly Shangri-La, right? Like, there's, there's issues here. And Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, is addressing pretty strongly some of these issues. And 2 Corinthians is just kind of picking up on this church family, working through some of these issues. Paul addresses the church very strongly in the first letter, which we call 1 Corinthians. And it results in actually a division arising between Paul and this church. And Paul finds out that there's a group of false apostles who have been working to discredit Paul on the basis of his sufferings and relative poverty. So they say, Paul had these strong words for you, but you shouldn't listen to him because he's poor and he's suffering. Surely someone, an apostle filled with the Holy Spirit, wouldn't be suffering and he wouldn't be poor like Paul is. And so a large part of what Paul is doing in this letter is showing that, look, listen, like my, my sufferings, they don't discredit me. They don't disqualify me as a follower of Christ. In fact, they identify me as a follower of Christ because Christ suffered, because Christ was relatively poor. My marks of suffering identify me as an apostle of Jesus. He writes that Jesus himself told Paul that Jesus' power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. And so this book is all about how Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, works in his disciples and how Jesus uses our weakness to show himself strong. 
the section that we just read from, in and around this chapter, Paul has spent time explaining how the Holy Spirit works in his people and renews his people. Paul has this great line where he says, though we waste away outwardly day by day, we get old and gray and bent over, the Holy Spirit is renewing us inwardly day by day. Verse 16 that we just read, Paul says that prior to coming to Christ, formerly we regarded Christ according to the flesh. In other words, we, we, we thought about him and, and evaluated Jesus based on a worldly set of metrics. We valued beauty and education and success and esteem and all of those good things that we want to say yes to. We used worldly metrics for evaluating Jesus and his church and his way. But after we meet Jesus, we're a new creation. God renews us, verse 17, and our worldly value system is overturned. And we see, for instance, that it's God's strength displayed through weakness, that Christ on the cross is his glory, not his shame. And we reorganize the priorities of our life around Christ. In fact, in the section just prior to this, I love this language. Paul says that he is constrained by the love of Christ. And so he just sees people through a different lens. He, he, because Christ loves me, I love you, he tells the, the recipients of the letter. Paul says that the old passes away in us, the new comes, that God is going to renew everything, and he starts with you and I, his church, God renovating our hearts by his spirit. And then in verse 18, this is sort of our money section, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So one way to sort of frame out the history of the world is one of a big, broken relationship. The God from his mercy and his kindness created everything. All that exists comes from God. And chief amongst his creation was humanity, was Adam and Eve. But after God created this good world, Adam and Eve chose to follow their own desires and, 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 and stiff-armed God and believed the lies of the serpent. And the result is everything has been fractured. That humanity has been cut off from God and all creation has been cut off from God by virtue of humanity's sin. And so there's this big, this big kind of fracture, this rupture that exists between God and his creation. We were exiled east of Eden as a, as a species. We've been living east of Eden ever since. And we've been uh, imbibing, drinking to the dregs, things like envy and bitterness and resentment and lust and greed and every other misery that you and I are fully acquainted with. We were made for life with God to know and enjoy God, yet we chose to be cut off. We, we created a chasm. But the scripture tells us that God, through Christ, no longer counts our trespasses against us because Christ moved towards us. He took on our condition he died for our sin in order that we could be reconciled back to God. That chasm that existed there could be closed in Christ. We could be made into something new by virtue of Christ coming to us. Verse 20, he says that the, the result of this being reconciled is that we are made ambassadors for Christ. And that God makes his appeal through us. Is anybody familiar with the, the story Les Mis? There's the, there's the big novel that some of y'all have read. Probably, probably none of y'all have read. <laughs> I haven't. Maybe some of you English majors have. Then there's, the, there's the, the musical, and then there's the movie musical, and then there's the movie movie. It's like the movie movie has Liam Neeson, the movie musical has Gladiator and Wolverine, and Catwoman, Anne Hathaway, right? That's my, pretty much my familiarity with it. And it's an appropriate title because that is a miserable movie to sit through, the musical version at least. Except, so the one part of that 
movie that got me. So Wolverine is at the beginning. He's this criminal. Jean Valjean, is, that's his name. I'm pretty sure that's his name in the movie. Jean Valjean. Um, and uh, at the beginning of the film, he's this fugitive who's on the run. And he finds refuge with this priest in the area. And in the middle of the night, uh, he's still sort of stuck in his fugitive ways. He decides to skip town, and he takes a couple of candlesticks that are made of gold. He takes them with him because he's going to cash it in, silver, some, it's some pre- precious metal. He makes his way out after stealing from this priest. And as he's you know, sort of on the run, he gets apprehended by a couple of police in the city. They discover these candlesticks in his possession. They, they find out that they belong to the priest. They take him back to the priest's house, and they're like, priest, what do you want us to do with this criminal? And if you've seen the movie, you remember the scene, because this is, this is a really beautiful scene. The priest says, oh, he didn't take those. I gave them to him. Because the priest understands that this guy's going to be in trouble. But the priest responds to this guy's sin by offering grace. And what happens to Jean Valjean throughout the rest of the film? Everything. He, he is completely and radically and alter, like fundamentally altered because of the grace that was shown to him by the priest. And the rest of the film, it's like he is constrained by the grace that was shown to him. And he, he, he feels obligated to show grace to others. Now, that's solid. The movie was a chore, but that is solid. That is good stuff. And I think what Paul, I think what Paul is saying, in essence, is, is that principle. It's like you and I have been reconciled to, to, to God through Christ. We have been shown grace. We have been pardoned when we did not deserve it. And that grace must therefore cast a shadow on everything else that we do. And what I love that he says in verses 18 and 19, he says two things have happened to every Christian in verses 18 and 19. He says, if you are a Christian, Jesus has done two things for you. One, he has not counted your trespasses against you and therefore reconciled you to God. And two, he has entrusted to you the message of reconciliation. You have been reconciled and you have now been entrusted with the message of that reconciliation. Something that's really powerful to consider in the Bible is how often the authors of the scriptures make this little move. The things God does for you, you need to go do for others. Like later in this same letter, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's going to tell the Corinthians, Christ was rich and became poor for you so that you could become rich. Therefore, be generous with your money. Give your money away, Paul says. You think about other scriptures, like Aaron pointed this out, Romans 15. God has welcomed you in Christ. What does he say? Now welcome one another. Show hospitality. Or you can think about even Jesus' own teaching. When Jesus says, Jesus says in the Beatitudes that those who receive mercy are who? Those who show mercy. And in order to be forgiven, we must demonstrate a heart of forgiveness. Even all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God calls and blesses Abram, what does he bless him to do? To go be a blessing. Over and over again, the scriptures hold out this picture of us receiving something from God that we we are then called to go do out in the world. We are called to go be his agents of the very thing that he does for us. Mercy, forgiveness, generosity, hospitality. It's like leavening bread. You put yeast in it, and it's this little bacteria that eventually permeates the whole loaf. It's like God restores us and then embeds us in the world to go participate in his purposes and his activity in the world by doing the very same things that he did for us. So how can we define evangelism? Simply like this. Evangelism is inviting people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. That's evangelism. Inviting people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. Because we have been reconciled, and because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, because Christ did not hold our sin against us and reconciled us to his Father, he then commissions us out with a message of reconciliation everywhere we go. 
Evangelism is inviting people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And there's five things that evangelism requires of us. This is not comprehensive. Five things. First, love for Jesus. Love for Jesus. We've got to be convinced of the truth of the gospel in our hearts and minds. This is not to say that we don't have doubts or not to say that we have comprehensive knowledge of all of the scriptures or whatever. It just means that we need to love and obey Jesus and just feel this kind of constraint. Like Paul says he feels. I feel constrained by the love of Christ to love others and to be compelled to share the gospel because of what Christ has done for me in the gospel. We don't evangelize from a place of superiority. We are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We love Jesus and we want to see Jesus. other people love Jesus and other people experience the forgiveness that we've experienced and so we evangelize. The word evangelize literally means to good news. It's like the, the verb form of good news. So in a very literal sense, to evangelize someone is to go good news somebody. It's to tell them the good news of Jesus' death for sin so that they can be reconciled to God. This is the, this is the relief that I have found in Christ that has gripped me. And I want to make Jesus known to you because Christ is good. So the first thing that evangelism requires is just love for Jesus. The second thing that we can say evangelism requires is a willingness to say no to other good things. A willingness to say no to good things. Like I said a moment ago, we just have to choose to do this over the other things that we might want to do. We just have to choose to make this a priority. Think about what he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.16. We once formerly regarded Christ according to the flesh. We, we once thought about the world and about uh, uh, who Christ was and about kind of our place in the world according to the worldly standards and according to the flesh. But that's not the set of lenses that we use any longer. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has a way of just upending and rearranging our priorities. So we have a new set of ideas as to what is most important for us. This is something I've been thinking about a whole lot lately. What's going to be here in a thousand years? A thousand years from now, what's going to be here? This building? It's made out of cinder blocks. So it's going to be here a while, probably, short of nuclear apocalypse or whatever. But in a thousand years, it's probably, it's probably not going to be standing. The house that you're living in, it's certainly not going to be around. Your, your fit, cross-fitted body, that thing's going to be long gone in a thousand years. But you know what will be here for sure? Your soul. You will. And your neighbor's soul. Your neighbor's soul will be here in a thousand years. So you can make a strong case that just about the most important thing is who you and who they are becoming and whether or not they are reconciled to God through Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul mentions almost in passing that everyone is going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And then in verse 11, he says, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So Paul says, at least in part, this motivation to tell people about Jesus is the recognition of the fact that we are eternal beings and that we will stand before God one day and our relationship to Jesus matters. And so we, gotta, we just gotta re re rearrange our priorities and be compelled by this fact that this is a very urgent task for us to spread the gospel. So it is vital that we embrace the costly practices of discipleship and evangelism. That means that I probably won't ever be playing Stevie Wonder on piano, but I think I'm okay with that trade-off. 
I think I'm okay with saying yes to discipleship and evangelism and rearranging the stuff that I say yes to in order to make space for inviting people into my life so that they can know about Christ. The third thing that evangelism, I think, requires of us is hospitality. Uh, so I read this really, really good book this past week. There's an Australian guy uh, named Sam Chan. You should listen to his audiobooks because his, he, he narrates it with his Australian accent, and it ups the quality of the book by like three ticks. What he says is that hospitality is the secret sauce of evangelism. That hospitality essentially provides the space and permission for gospel conversations to occur. He makes the point that we all carry plausibility structures with us. A sort of predetermined grid for evaluating whether or not something is believable. And he uses the example of a UFO. He says, we just don't have the plausibility structures in place for a UFO. If I were to go to you over lunch and say, I encountered a UFO, you're probably going to think I'm crazy. But if 15 of us said that we encountered a UFO, that changes things. Right? He makes the, the case that we have plausibility structures in place, a predetermined grid for the things that we're willing to believe. And for a lot of folks who aren't Christians, the Christian faith is just implausible to them. It's just not believable. And we often think that, think that it's a, a facts or data thing, which it could be. But he says often it's a matter of community. It's a matter of the people to which they belong and the experiences they've had. And so he makes the point that part of evangelism is building plausibility structures for people for the Christian faith through data and info, yes, but more importantly, through a different experience with a different kind of people. Opening your home and opening your community to people who don't yet believe, to make the Christian faith legitimate, to make it viable even for them. He says that community is the most important piece of this because a huge piece of what you believe is who you're surrounded by. And so one really practical tip he gives for evangelism is that we should merge our universes, he says. So what he means by this is that we should introduce our non-Christian friends to our Christian friends. So a really practical thing that we can do is if we're going we're to go to the movies, we're going to go see the new Marvel movie, invite a Christian friend and invite a non-Christian friend as a place to begin building a, a platform or a space for those relationships to take root. You're going you're to play flag football on November 18th with the Church of Greer Station at Fairview Field at 6 p.m.? Invite non-Christian friends. Invite folks into the things that you're doing. Merge your universes. He says you're going to have dinner, open your home to a non-Christian neighbor, and then invite people from your community group to come too. Match make your friends to help build a, legitimate, a plausibility structure for folks who don't yet believe. It's not just the facts of the faith, but opening our Christian lives and our real love of God and the way it shapes our values and decision-making. Inviting people into that to see that. In the same book, he gives an, another really helpful practical approach. He calls this the coffee-dinner gospel approach. Uh, the idea here is that we play the long game and slowly build towards deeper conversations with friends, like moving into an inner circle. I should have a picture. There it is. He says we can think about uh, doing coffee with somebody as the, kind of the first touch, the building of the relationship. It's where we explore interests. We take half an hour, we talk about movies, hobbies, whatever. We think about it in terms of making a friend. And then he says from there, after we feel like we've built sufficient rapport, we, we move deeper. We move to dinner where we can discuss values and get deeper. We can, after a few coffees, maybe out, maybe in your home, you invite them over and you talk about things like, what are you looking for in life? What, what, do you, what would you say are the most important things to you? Start talking about those kinds of value questions. And then he says, after time, after we build trust and show ourselves to be friends, we can take advantage of those important pieces of the conversation to begin talking around ultimate things. You like exercise? What makes you want to be healthy? What do, you, what do you think the purpose of our bodies is? What happens when we can't be healthy? What do we do about chronic sickness? What about when we die inevitably? Do you have any thoughts on death or what happens after that? 
a relative has passed, we say, what do you believe about life after death? It's an opportunity to begin exploring those ultimate questions. You disappointed in work? Well, how do you deal with those disappointments? What if there's a ceiling to how good things can get in life? Do you have any hope beyond this life? He says we can begin moving towards deeper conversations by taking this approach. And he says this secret sauce, the secret sauce to this is hospitality, just making space for people and inviting them in. The fourth thing that evangelism requires is stick-to-itiveness. We've got to play the long game, and we've got to play it where Jesus puts us. Studying this passage, I noticed that Paul said, and I love this language, that God is making his appeal through us. Verse 20. The word appeal there invokes almost like a long-term persuasion. God is persuading people through us. We're the chosen means that God uses to call people to himself. We've got to play the long game and be committed to letting God make his appeal through our efforts. And over and over and over again in the scriptures, agricultural language is used to describe ministry. It's about, it's about being like a farmer and just having a farmer's grit and waking up early and sowing and sowing and sowing some more and trust that the Lord is the one who provides the harvest. Which leads to the fifth thing. The fifth thing that evangelism requires is confidence that God does the work. At the end of the day, though God calls us to be faithful, at the end of the day, God is the one who changes hearts. Jesus tells us in his great commission that he will be with us as we go. And I think you can make a case that Jesus is more committed to this than we are. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Paul says that Christ is reconciling the world through us, through our efforts. In verse 20, we are doing so on behalf of God. Ultimately, evangelism is God's work. God making his appeal through us graciously, amazingly allowing us to be the vessel of his spirit. But Tim Keller once said, it's like Elijah. We build the altar, God sends the fire. So we think about our evangelistic encounters as altar building. We trust that the Lord will send his spirit and send his fire. So as those both reconciled and entrusted with the message of reconciliation, I just wonder, is Jesus not worth this? Is Christ not being worth, is he not worthy of being adored by every soul, being sung to with every tongue and the breath that is in every chest and with the beat of every heart, is Christ not worthy of being adored? And are the stakes not high when we consider in a thousand years what's going to be left? The Jesus of the cross and resurrection, the Jesus of the gospel of Matthew, man, I, I want to see him worshipped and delighted in. And we want to see our neighbors and those names and faces and those family members delighting and rejoicing and enjoying the Jesus that we delight in, that we rejoice in, and that we enjoy. And so it's our hope that for Christ's namesake, we would take seriously the call to evangelism, recognizing that it looks different for each of us in the places that God has put us, but that we would feel that Christ himself has commissioned us exactly where we are to go be his ambassadors, inviting people to be reconciled to him. In the next few moments, we're going to pray. Uh, there's a couple of questions for re- reflection in the bulletin. I would encourage you to think about those uh, this evening during this reflection time, but also throughout the week. And I pray that Christ would make us eager to evangelize for his name's sake. Let's pray.